welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Regular listeners will remember that episodes two and three were focused on the 1st of January reinsurance renewals. Now, obviously, it's not too late to check them out if you haven't already listened. But by this stage in the year, many of you have probably been saturated with all of the reinsurance reports and bombarded with all, the, with all of the statistics. So now, one one's out of the way, uh, it's time to be looking ahead to the significant renewal dates of the 1st of April, the 1st of June and the 1st of July. Market watchers will know that the 1st of April is all about Asia and especially Japan. The 1st of June is Florida and July and mid-year is uh, the big uh, casualty treaty renewal time, uh, particularly in the US. The reinsurance market has a lot invested in these renewals and has high expectations of pricing change uh, because Japanese typhoon has been incredibly active in the last couple of seasons and loss development has taken everyone by surprise. Florida has been busy uh, developing its losses of 2017 and 2018 in new and surprising ways. And of course, tension has been building in the US casualty world as original rates have moved sharply upwards and reserving trends uh, and claims trends have been coming increasingly under the spotlight. So there's a huge amount to play for in 2020. And that's why I was really lucky to catch up with Steve Aurora, who's the CEO of Axis Re. I caught up with him at Axis fantastic new London offices in the shiny and angular new skyscraper in the building opposite Lloyd's, uh, known colloquially as the Scalpel. Um, Steve took up his post at Axis Re just over two years ago. And to give you an idea of the a kind of hint at the scale of those operations, Axis Re wrote $3.2 billion of gross premium in 2019. In our talk, we focus on all the big uh, 2020 renewal seasons I've just been talking about in a lot of detail. But to set the scene and put him at his ease, I started by giving Steve a loosener question. Um, I asked him to tell us a bit about himself, his career to date, and tell us where Axis Re fits into the global reinsurance marketplace. Thanks, Mark. I mean, I guess just a, a word on myself. Been in the industry for my entire career. Um, haven't worked at many companies, but I have worked in many job families. So I started in risk management and then finance and ultimately made my way to the front end of the business. And I've worked in several different markets. So I've uh, had the opportunity to have a generalist career path um, and I've been with Axis Re for um, a little bit over two years now. And Axis, where you know you're in the top twenty reinsurance uh, players, but where do you want to play? Presumably, you don't want to kind of mix it with the Swiss and Munich of these world. Uh. Well, we want to be a top ten global reinsurer, and according to the way we look at and analyze the market, we consider ourselves to be around a number eleven. Um, because we measure really the global players that are out there. Um, we take out some of the national replayers, and we look at PNC only in external sessions. Um, but nevertheless, this is not about premium. And um, if we're number nine or number eight or number 12, in the end, that's not what's important. What's important is that we have the necessary strength and the reach to solve our client needs. And it's a really interesting question around what do we want to be? Um, and, you know, I think one thing that Axis did really, really well from the beginning of time was not to focus only on one product or another, but to have a very broad offering and to really establish itself as a global player, you know, 18, 19 years ago. So 
We like to be a global player that has a broad set of capabilities that can solve our clients' needs. And ultimately, if we can do that in a way that wins for us and wins for them, um, our aspiration is to be more meaningful to the industry so we can add more value. So you, you, know, you, so you have pretty big ambitions. So it's uh, not just a niche player, it's global, it's a bit of everything, and you want to be relevant to your clients sort of wherever they are and whatever they're doing, really. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a nice way of summarizing it. At the end of the day, we've been really strong as an expert-driven company that um, has been very technical but also has the agility of a medium-sized player, and we want to keep those intact. But the path that we've been on over the last two years has been how can we do more? How can we be much more effective with clients? How can we be hungry and active? And that's really... Um, one of the key ingredients to our strategy going forward is really leaning in with clients and making sure that um, we're effective so we can match that technical expertise, that agility uh, with really good relationships and partnerships in the future. Right. Okay. Well, I think that's that's probably enough about, about access. That's, that's really interesting. But what's so interesting right now is the state of the market that we're in uh, in reinsurance. If we can maybe just, we've probably heard a lot about 1-1, but if you kind of sweep that away and we're probably, we, you know, mentally everyone's much uh, closer to 1-4 than we were to 1-1, we've kind of moved on. Uh, give us a bit of a flavor about what's what's coming up. Um, well, how's it been for Axis? Obviously, I've just seen your Q4 results. Uh, you go, um, uh, GW, uh, GWP was up 19%, if I'm right, in, in Q4, and uh, your net was up 22%. So presumably, you, you're quite happy with the way things are going. You're, you, you're writing more, or how much of that was actual rate, and how much of that is just volume? Well, Q4 um, is not a big renewal cycle for reinsurance, so we're talking about pretty small numbers. Um, and you have a mixture of many different things going in and there. In terms I'm just of being a typical journalist, just <laughs> reading too much into... into no, but far, you far captured the right headlines. I'm impressed. Um, no, but you have a little bit of rate. You have a couple of new deals that um, you know we were really excited about. And there's a few things. There's some timing issues, um, which doesn't make the comparison like for like. But if I before I talk about what's coming in the market, if I can just try and talk about the market overall in terms of context, I think it's important. And, um, you know, we all know that the market is on the right trend, but the reason for that is the reinsurance sector has suffered from this unnatural phenom phenomenon of unsustainable rates. And I think overall what I'd like to say is that I don't think the sector can add its maximum value until rate adequacy reaches acceptable levels. And, and maybe I can and say a little bit more about that. So we all know that the market's fundamentally changed. Um, you know, price equilibrium over time was decreasing because we had a steady increase in supply and, and demand, you can say, was fairly flat to stable. But if you look at the numbers, the reinsurance sector is around $585 billion with a steady increase of 3 or 4% per annum so over for, that so period of time. In terms of that's capital available? Or is that, capital. Uh, that's capital. That's capital. Um, and that's, a, that's both traditional and alternative markets um, increasing over time, despite record loss activity in 17 and 18. Now, what 19 has done, it's made it very clear that the sector overall has a global profitability issue. And so you can tell immediately that the tone has changed. And, you know, supply, while it's been growing steadily over time, is probably set to stay flat or contract when it's all said and done. 
And by the way, I just want to make a note here about supply. Um, a strongly capitalized reinsurance market is a good thing. And the reason why is it allows the private sector to solve society's needs when things happen. And so, um, yes, we're going to talk about profitability during this conversation, but I also am an advocate for a strongly capitalized market because at the end of the day, that's good for everyone. So what are we going to do? Um, you're saying that rates, uh, you know, we've got a profitability problem that implies that rates are not adequate. They're going to stop. You, you're implying that, that, well, they're moving in the right direction. But yeah. With this record capital, how how is that going to add up in the end? I mean, how long, for one, how inadequate are rates would you, at the moment? That's probably that's probably one conversation. Let's go into that first. I mean, how far off? How many years of of hardening do we need before we get back to where the point where your actuaries are, are happy with you? Well, it's hard to predict, as you know, and it, everybody, every company has their own view of risk. But with an overcapitalized or a strongly capitalized market, the only way the reinsurance sector will move is if we transition to being a more disciplined market and becoming an underwriter's market. And that means we all need to be prepared to walk away from business when it doesn't make the grade, and that's when things will change. Um, and I, I think there's two important points to make on why there's an importance of a market cor correction. The value add of reinsurance to clients is risk management and capital management. It's not a subsidy. And the value add for reinsurance to ownership, investors, etc., is strong profitability potential, the diversifying nature of, of risk, and a lean operating platform. So with profitability being important to both of those set of stakeholders, you know, the current situation is just not sustainable. And I think that the reinsurance sector has a lot of value to add, and it will be unlocked, um, you know, when pricing corrects and when um, we can um, really support the ambition of individuals and businesses, and we're on the right path, right? So demand is is a notch higher, supply is flat to slightly stable, you have a lot of um you know, a different tone in the market about, you know, being more disciplined. Um, and clearly, there were a lot of data points at 1-1, but it's a start. And as an industry or as a sector, we need to keep going. So have you found, I mean, but how, how, have you found that you, you're saying no a lot more? Is that, is that just a simple, simple fact? I think that everybody has to build the strongest portfolios possible, and there is pruning that is involved in the portfolio. I would say our story was more of working with our clients to get the right intersection. So at 1-1, obviously, like everyone else, or I can expect um, others had similar objectives. We wanted to drive rate. We wanted to build the strongest portfolio. Through that process, I really feel that we maintained very solid relationships with clients and brokers. And, you know, one of the ingredients to that is strong communication, being early, being consistent, backing up what you say you're going to do. But we have credibility with our uh, partners, and I found we were able to get to the right intersection. So it wasn't always about saying no. It was just about being clear, talking about needs on both sides, and ultimately getting to a place which worked uh, for both the clients and brokers and also for us. 
so you're sort of saying that um, clients actually respect uh, a counterparty that uh, is really clearly laying out its stall and saying, look, if you want me, you need to be around here because, uh, and, and that you're good at communicating that and they want to work with someone who's going to be around for the long term. And, and do they, does there a tacit recognition from them that they also understand that perhaps uh, they've been uh, getting a free ride on, or uh, as you said, actually before, a subsidy on their, on their insurance perhaps? And that they needed to I end. would say that clients respect long-term relationships, um, those counterparties who have credibility and have delivered, but the ability to have high-quality conversations. And when you're in front of a client, you show up. You talk about the real issues. I think um, you know where the industry can fail is if you don't talk about the tough issues and your behaviors and your actions don't match some of the words that you have leading in. That leads to confusion um, all around. So I really believe communication's important. I think being disciplined and professional and the way you follow up is important. And you know the way we measure that is in daily client interactions, but also we take client satisfaction very seriously. And that's a measure that we've institutionalized over the last couple of years. And I suppose no one really wants a reinsurer who's not adding any value and is not really being a second pair of eyes on, on your own underwriting. And also, no one really wants a reinsurer who's going to keep losing money year after year to the point where they're not much use as security to you. <laughs> yeah, and I think when it comes to service offering and what you bring, your value proposition, uh, some reinsurers may choose to be, um, you know, value-added provider in, in services or expertise, etc., and others may differentiate on agility and a quick response and maybe others um, in price if they have a real lean operating platform. So I think there's different value propositions out there and clients have to make a choice in terms of who they want to do business with. Um, talking about rate acceptability, um, obviously you have to build, you build your rate and you build, uh, uh, you know, you've got all your different costs and different models and other stuff. But of course, one key factor of that is the, the, the your definition of how much profit you need to make out of the business that you're doing um has that changed uh, at all you know would would it be fair for someone uh, who's a buyer of reinsurance to say that you guys uh, don't understand that perhaps uh, you know uh, in a zero interest rate environment has the reinsurance industry um adjusted its its adequacy uh, its its expected profit adequacy downwards or or is that totally is that just wrong uh, anyway, I'd like to, you know, do you think there's, is there, is, is anyone making a fair point if they believe that actually you guys, you don't need to make the kind of profits you used to before because, well, because I no would, one does. Because I would argue with you that over what it used to. a long period of time, the reinsurance industry has not made an impressive return. And in fact, um, you know, many studies show that it's been well below cost of capital for many, many years. So I would disagree with the assertion that the reinsurance industry has been, um, very lucrative and profitable over a long period of time, and therefore, um, you know, the push to get better rate adequacy is undermined. But based on your question, a couple points I'd like uh, to make. So, I think overall, what's a simple number is just to try and achieve a double-digit return on equity, right? And we obviously want more than that, but again, if you look back in time, that's been kind of a difficult task. So, I don't think that changes. Uh, maybe the hurdle rate is higher. And then everybody has their own portfolio composition and which hurdle rates you want to assign to which lines of business. But 
one thing we always need to do as an industry is challenge our view of risk. So the calculation of our expected losses and our loss costs. And as you learn from losses and other risk factors, that by definition has to be uh, adjusted. And the other thing you mentioned in terms of interest rates, when you look at business on an economic basis and you discount cash flows, interest rates are another ingredient or risk factor to determining what the right sale price is. So I think it is very relevant. Um, and everybody measures deals and their portfolio in a different way. But I would say you can't ignore a low interest rate environment when you're trying to determine what type of margin you need um, on long tail classes. Okay, I think that's probably enough about that kind of stuff. Um, I think we should probably talk about um, you talking about your relationship with your clients, and you know we've got a, an interesting, very interesting renewal where I'm sure you're going to have some really quite difficult and deep conversations uh, uh, as as your trusted reinsurance partner, Access Re, with some of your clients out in out in Asia after loss creep. On, uh, on some of the typhoon losses. And how are you going to start to go about that uh, dialogue? Presumably, obviously, it's already a constant dialogue anyway, because, of course, you, you've got these claims coming in, so you're constantly talking. But now, presumably, is about the time you start really talking about the uh, 1st of April renewals. Um, what, how do you start that conversation uh, uh, w with, with your customers over there? So, as you first of all, as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, I mean, there's been a lot reported on 1-1, so we don't need to go through that in great detail, but it was an improving market. And I think, um, you know, there's still a long way to go to get to the right level. And as you look to the remainder of the year, there's these three very big ticket renewals coming up because they're uh, the markets that are most disrupted right now, which is Japan at April 1, um, Florida at June 1, and then U.S. casualty, which can range anywhere from April to October. So in Japan, um, you know, Japan's a very strategic market for us because it's a good market with good clients and a good buying culture, and we're invested. And, um, you know, we increased our penetration after Jebby and Trami at the 2019 renewal. It's proven to be tough timing because, you know, we had yet another record season, but we remain committed to that market. And I guess overall, uh, we consider Japan to be very responsible and expect that the market will respond positively or in the right way to the loss activity that's been sustained over the last um, two years. You know, um, I guess expanding on that, there is a need for substantial rate increases. I don't think that's a controversial point um, as we enter the renewal. But when you deconstruct why, the first thing that needs to be discussed is that everybody's view of risk especially on wind business, will probably change because we have a more developed view of Typhoon Jebby, which will change your assumption of what type of return period that event is and will likely influence the calculation of the expected losses. Um, so that's the first movement. And the second one is, I mean, clearly, you know, we need a significant risk-adjusted rate increases, which would be the rate over trend. So... I think that other perils may be impacted as well, um, but I think it's a market that will respond, but you know, it will be an intense renewal period over the next couple of months. Um, one of the features of, of 
one one was perhaps a greater differentiation between you know good good students and bad students or you know better customers uh, uh, than others is is that going to be a feature in uh, in Japan do you think well i think you know uh for everyone that understands the japanese market i mean there's a small number of clients and um i don't think it's comparable to the global market or some of the other markets so i think the participants and the concentration and the dynamics are different so you, what you say, because there's such big players, it's much harder. You can't really pick a winner there because if you've only got five, five or six really massive players that dominate the market, you're kind of you're done. Then you really just need to play the market across the board. Is that is that the case? Well, I think you have a mixture between a very large quote unquote mega PNC companies, and then you have a collection of mutuals, which are called kiosais in the Japanese market. Um, but I think it's less about segmentation, and I think it's more about just evaluating what the right view of risk is, what's the right risk-adjusted return, where do you want your limits in terms of the portfolio you want to build, what's the right balance between different perils. Um, I think it comes down to just classic portfolio management. And you know, as I mentioned earlier um, in this segment, that you know we're committed to the Japanese market. We're committed to supporting clients and, you know, we'd like to grow in the right places. But nevertheless, we also have portfolio objectives and need to make sure that, um, you know, we get the right risk adjusted returns to make sure this is a sustainable proposition as we move forward. So, so you're not cutting back or anything like that. You're not saying that what you've seen has sort of frightened you off or anything, you know, in terms of some of these losses coming out far greater than the model loss would have suggested. We are committed to the market and have faith in the relationships that we have and the, the clients in the market. Like I said, it's a good buying culture with good clients in a good market, and we remain committed. And we'll work together with our clients over the next two months. We'll get to the right answers together, um, and we look forward to being successful in that market over the long term. Well, from one good good market to another, perhaps a slightly more challenged insurance market, uh, is that fair to say? I don't know. Next time I go over there, maybe I'll, uh, uh, they'll let me. They'll remind me of anything I say about the Florida market. But it is far. Let's say uh, it's it's probably chalk and cheese in terms of uh, uh, Florida versus uh, uh, Japan. You know, you're talking about a, um, a state with many many smaller players, um, all sorts of all kinds of uh, operations, uh, large and small. Let's say some more professional than others. Um, there is it much more of a stock pickers kind of market. There you can you, you need to pick your partners. Uh, looking ahead to uh, to one six, and we've obviously had similar similar problems with uh, with loss creep, and of course you know all sorts of issues within the underlying insurance market with the assignment of benefits difficulties and other things. And how how are you going to go about uh, attacking that market? Well, I think you've already hit on the the main points, um, and you know, at the end of the day, I think that the key message is, yet again, you need meaningful rate increases. I think you need to emphasize selection. So pick your partners. Um, and just did every company's need to determine, you know, what percent of their portfolio do they want in Florida, right? And some people are underweight, and they probably want to increase others, maybe the opposite direction. And, you know, I think that's a very individual choice. You know, just to describe the market, I mean, you could say it's dynamic, certainly, um, disrupted, and it may even be dislocated uh, by the time the renewal comes. 
I, I guess the big disappointment has been on the long tail phenomenon of cat losses. Um, you know, that's illustrated with the development of Hurricane Irma and others. And clearly there's instability um, in that market. And the reason why that's interesting is you take that instability and then you add it to the fact that this is a peak risk driver for most companies. It's a really fascinating situation. So, um, you know, again, um, you know, Florida is a part of our portfolio, one we expect to continue as we move forward. But of course, we need to uh, drive rate increases and we have to emphasize selection. And that's going to be our mindset as we go through the renewal. So is it just rate? Um, um or you know, uh, uh, would you stick up and say actually, there's, there are parts of this market that just need to change fundamentally, perhaps almost on a political level, before you can really be happy. What I would say is, in order to be successful in certain markets, you need to have high certainty in your expected losses, which means when you price the business, you need to be able to uh, be confident in some of the assumptions that you're making. And I think, you know. Um, there's some non-economic risk factors that play, at least in the most recent past in Florida, and I think they're difficult to assess and difficult to price. So um, ultimately, you want to have as much confidence as you possibly can in pricing cat risk. And I think that it's one notch lower in Florida because of some of the characteristics that you mentioned with AOB and others. But it will still be a very, very meaningful part of the reinsurance market um, it's a big part of our portfolio. Um, that will always continue. Um, but again, it's going to be an interesting renewal where I think, similar to Japan, although completely different market, um, it needs a bit of a correction. So it's almost like if you write property cat, you have to do Florida, whatever happens, however happy or unhappy you are, because it's such a large piece of the pot, you can't miss it. I wouldn't say that. And I think there's plenty of companies out there that... Um, don't feel pressure that something has to be a part of your portfolio. I mean, I think everybody wants to build the portfolio that's going to deliver the best results for them. And uh, we all have different criteria um, that that base an optimal portfolio. Um, so, look, um, I think the, the situation in Florida is still unfolding. There's a little bit of time before the peak June renewal period. Um, and we'll take it step by step. Steve, before we move on to talking about casualty, which is the, ne the next of the trio uh, uh, that we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, for, for the interesting renewals of this year, um, one fact I haven't spoke asked you about was um, the retro. While we're still talking about property cat focused renewals, um, what about the effect of retro? Um, you know, the the, the the we had the collateralized ILS backed uh, collateralized retro markets sort of disappearing or being locked up at the last renewal, affecting certainly affecting pricing in a meaningful way. Did that affect you as a pure reinsurer? Did that affect your strategy going forward into uh, into into one one? And how is it is it going to affect your strategy going into one four and, and one six as well? Uh, you know, how, how much are you sort of driven by what's happening in the retro market? Or do, or do you, you just take it or leave it? So um, a couple of points there. So one is the advertised hardening of the retro market is real. And we see it because we also write inwards retro, small portfolio, but we saw it there and we buy outwards retro. And, you know, so 
um, I think uh, those rate increases um, are factual and they're real. So that's that's point number one. Point two is we run our portfolio on a gross basis. So we buy retro, we have partners, we use third-party capital, um, and that's been part of the access story for several years. Um, you know, but we build our portfolio and we execute on a gross basis. And therefore, you know, reshaping curves and upscaling in some markets and reducing in others, that's part of a gross portfolio strategy. And we work side by side with partners who have fully aligned interests um, who participate in supporting us, um, not only in our cat book, but in other lines of business as well. So I would say any of the adjustments that we've made or uh, decisions have been in what's in the best interest of our gross portfolio. Clearly, we want to make the best return for our uh, strategic capital partners, and we feel like the interests are fully aligned, um, and we feel really good about where we are there. So just in that sense, would you you'd be writing writing a little bit more of inwards uh, and, and buying a little bit less outwards, or, or was that... Uh... Is that fair to say? Or? I would say that would be over-interpreting. Um, so, um, you know, we manage the aggregations and PMLs at a bit of a higher level than that. Um, and so, uh, you know, there was no specific uh, strategy as such when it gets that granular. But at the end of the day, we're trying to build um, the best portfolio uh, that we possibly can and achieve the right cat curve for Axis. Um, as, and as someone who's sort of, you know, really across the board and very close to capital uh, and always has been, um, what's your sense of some of this trapped capital? Um, what's going to happen to it if it becomes untrapped and gets released? Is it likely to be redeemed by some of those investors who might say they've had enough of this uh, this investment? Or, or is it going to be redeployed and is that going to affect the retro pricing all over again and, and it start to go down again? It's a good question and, and hard to speculate. I would say, based on our conversation earlier, um, regardless of the trapped capital situation or not, I do expect that supply overall, both traditional and alternative, will be rather flat, maybe a notch down, um, you know, in 2020. And I expect um, demand to be slightly elevated. I mean, Artemis did a survey, as they do every year, um, and they asked the community who wants to buy more, who wants to buy less, et cetera, and which I thought was very interesting. It was about 6% of the population said they were going to buy less. 50% um, said they were going to buy more, and the balance said, you know, kind of about the same. And we certainly felt that um, at 1-1, and as we talk to clients now, that there are more needs in terms of earnings volatility or um you know, trying to protect um, income statements and balance sheets. And so I expect demand to continue to be at a very strong level. By the way, protection gaps are still massive. And we project demand in reinsurance to steadily increase over time, maybe 3% per year from 2019 to 2021. So you know, there's still a very strong need and a very strong relevance for reinsurance. It's just historically has been strongly capitalized. And I think these trends in terms of price equilibrium increasing because we have a global profitability issue will continue. Right. Um, let's get on to um, the casualty question, which I think is probably the most, has been most the most interesting one, uh, you know, because it's such a, a long scale, long, 
long-term cyclical uh, market, which is, seems to be showing signs of uh, certain signs of, of, of turning and of, and of stress. Um, how much? Uh, I mean, how comfortable are you with the? What's your take, actually? You're just on the the casualty reserving situation. Do you think we're we're heading into a very large? You know, do you do you buy into the the, the, the old reserving cycle? Uh, and uh, how are we now entering into a period of reserve inadequacy and uh, you know a period of many years in in which um, most people's results are are peppered with um, uh, reserve you know increases in reserves and provisions for prior years rather than reserve releases. I think it's hard to generalize across the market. I think that story will be individual to different companies in terms of what their portfolios are, where they decided to play when, what was the adequacy of loss picks, how um, conservative or aggressive were you in setting reserves. So it's very difficult to generalize across the broader market. But my hypothesis is that there will be pain felt in the industry, and it all depends on what your practices were leading up to it. But just on U.S. casualty overall, I think the big challenge is what are your cost of goods sold moving forward? So we know that we live in an industry, we're one of the only industries out there, if not the only one, insurance, where you don't know your cost of goods sold. And I think this is even more amplified with U.S. casualty at the moment because we all know that casualty is a social science, okay? Property is a natural science. And in a social science, it comes a lot uh, uh, to behavior. And when you have non-economic risk factors. So you're not talking about wage inflation. You're not talking about medical cost inflation. You're talking about social inflation. And I think the hard thing is how do you assign the right loss cost to um, that risk as you move forward? So rates are increasing meaningfully both on the primary side and starting on the reinsurance side. Uh, and I would I would say that Soft market commissions need to be adjusted. But the combination of the two looks quite impressive at face value. But every company needs to challenge themselves in terms of what is the expected loss for those individual transactions and those portfolios. And I think that will ultimately come down to everyone's posture, whether you want to grow, whether you want to retract, or keep something you know fairly moderate. And as Axis, you've got a very big uh, casualty uh, arm on the insurance side of your business is that you able to kind of get some of their data and, and uh, help analyze that and also um, the other main question would be um, are reinsurers driving some of this uh, some of this hardening and casualty or are they just actually just being happy to to go along for the ride with the, the primary side of, of the insurance market is actually fixing itself and the reinsurers are just getting a free ride along Okay, so you know, a few rather than being the ones to push it. Yeah, a few thoughts. So first of all, yes, we have um, an access insurance business. Um, yeah, we, we, which is well known for being a, a casualty. Leader. But what I would say is my observation, being with the company for a little over two years, is my belief is that business and those underwriting teams have managed the cycle well. So um, I think they've been very proactive and maybe a little bit early detecting some of these these trends. In terms of sharing information, everything we do across insurance and reinsurance is within the legal boundaries of what is possible, no, no, right? Of course, Steve. <laughs> and uh, no, I say that because I think when you're a hybrid company, um, our ob obligation to our reinsurance clients is to make sure that you know 
um, we do business with them and we don't share information um, when it's not appropriate. So maybe it goes without saying, but you know, something that's really important to us because we really respect the relationships that we have with our clients and want that to be a very long-term proposition. Um, you know, access is a hybrid model. So one of the beauties of the hybrid model is not only do you gain insights on what's happening on both sides, um, but you're able to steer and manage a portfolio. And I would say, um, I believe we've managed a cycle well on both sides, but we had to continue to observe and get some experience in terms of um, what is going to be the profitability of the casualty um, market in you know the most recent underwriting years, and you know we'll make our decisions accordingly. I think right now the best thing we can do is to achieve as much primary rate as possible in the insurance business. Um, and also keep an eye on on very proactive portfolio management, which is something I've talked about a lot in, during this conversation. On the reinsurance side, when you do participate in pro rata treaties, you get the benefit of a primary rate. I think those soft market commissions that I mentioned definitely need to be addressed. Um, but similar to the conversation we had in Florida, um, even though they're fundamentally different situations here, this whole idea about segmentation, selection, and picking your partners um, also applies. So um, the message is um, we need to go back to some of the – this is on, on, on the proportional side. We need to go back to some, some of the seeding commissions that we were seeing before the market really softened. Yeah, the, one the size doesn't fit all. So every treaty and every client relationship is different. I would say is there's definitely a need for rate. And the key message, I would say, is you don't know your cost of goods sold. So everybody's going to have to take their own view of risk. And it's complex because of these non-economic risk factors that are at play. I was just, I had another look at Q4. Sorry, again, uh, obviously, uh, not a, perhaps not the most representative quarter and a bit of a small one. But um, I noticed actually in there something that, you know, uh, you know we're all looking at, at uh, ex expense ratio, that, that uh, two of your you know, acquisition costs and your own administration costs were moving uh, quite sharply lower actually was there anything is that the taste of things to come for the rest of 2020 or is that uh, or is that just reading too much into one quarter again so I would say that we have a big emphasis on remaining lean as a reinsurance operation that's something that I'm very proud about and I think that the business does well so we have expense discipline and control and I think that will continue acquisition expense is hard to interpret because many times it is a function of mix. And mix in one quarter it could have misleading uh, conclusions. Nevertheless, I'm not trying to undermine the message. I mean, we need to, on pro rata treaties, where it makes sense, you know, adjust commission levels. That's all part of this whole, you know, pricing being sustainable over the long term. There are probably plenty of treaties out there already that are set at the right level. So this is not meant to be too broad of a statement, but absolutely this is a lever and it's in the conversation. It's not just about primary rate. Reinsurance rate on pro rata treaties also um, is part of the equation. I want to talk more about um, market dynamics uh, in the sense of, um, uh, let's say three years ago, you could talk to any reinsurance broker and they'd say, okay, there's a consensus on pricing. If, if I hit this price, I can this this uh, placement will sign two hundred. You know, this will be overplaced two three hundred percent, and I can I'll have a massive headache trying to sign it down because everyone will say yes. Um, but below a certain level, everyone will say no. But now, how much more differentiated do you think the marketplace is in terms of uh, uh, 
less do you have do you think there's less agreement on what is the right price these days uh, and do you feel that, that anyway is access sticking out one side or the other or do you think you're down the middle well brokers tell us we're the most expensive of course but uh you know um no that's a joke so what the only data point i can give you or observation is i think this the era of oversubscription seemed to have come to an end um and you know, speaking to some of the larger broking firms, um, you know they have good statistics on this information. But nevertheless, at one one, particularly at the last couple of days of the year, I mean, it was obvious that certain programs were short, um, and there was a lot of pressure in the market to finalize placements. There was re-firm ordering of terms, um, which obviously tells you something, but. Um, I think programs got there in the end, right? So that's why when I said 1-1 was a good start, um, I do think it was a good start, but I think we're far away from dislocated conditions. Um, so I wouldn't oversell it as you know a very hard market. But nevertheless, I think um, that trend is probably over, and everybody has their own view of risk, which formulates a different price at the end of the day. So without data in front of me, yeah, my assumption or my observation or hypothesis would be that there was probably a wider range of prices um, recently than what you have seen in the past. Well, I hope you not think uh, that I'm um, being uh, sycophantic by saying that Axis is, 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 has always been seen as a quality uh, player, as quality security to have, uh, uh, to buy into. Do you think that there will be, a, is there any kind of flight to quality likely to happen as you know, we, we have fear at this stage of the market when if people are worried about, uh, well, I suppose it's a general trend that um, if you can't be sure of what um, what your Florida hurricane numbers are, or what they're going to end up being, you can't be sure of what your Japanese typhoon numbers are or uh, we're going to end up developing into. And you can't be sure of what the casualty uh, situation really is on your live uh, on the book that's still running that you've written in the last few years. Um, there's also a question about can you believe the numbers uh, from from a sedent side and also can a sedent really it's also a time when quality sedents tend to uh, re-rationalize some of the reinsurance security that they've been using as well and wondering hoping that uh, it's going to pay out and it's not going to be uh, a reinsurance recoverable that uh, stays unrecovered um, so I'm just talking about in general about about quality. Is that something? Is that a situation you're kind of looking forward to, or you're kind of uh, uh, thinking maybe it's payback time for, for 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 you know for Axis? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I mean being client focused and making progress in that direction is a really big part of our strategy. And um, you know, there's this kind of um, mentality in the market historically that if you're going to drive improvements to your portfolio or help be a part of the market solution on pricing or terms or whatever the case may be, that you are doing it at the expense of being client-focused. And you know what I'd like to share is I think both are achievable. And we experienced that at 1-1, and we're going to continue um, to be you know very tenacious in terms of being visible in front of our clients. Um, to make sure that the conversations are of high quality, the relationships are of high quality, to make sure that we communicate effectively, that we deliver on what we're going to say, um, that we're very professional in the way we we follow up, and that we have high client satisfaction. And what we've experienced and what I strongly believe is 
if you're able to manage a client relationship in that sort of way, even if you need to have a difficult conversation, ultimately you can retain or even improve the strength of your relationship. So I don't think it's a, a digital choice to say, you know, is your risk appetite, you know, changing, yes or no? Um, and therefore, what's going to happen in your client relationship? We remain very confident that we're going to be able to be a part of the industry solution, but at the same time, continue to build our client franchise to one that's very successful. So you, so you're saying you can really, you know, that you can have those difficult conversations with with clients, even if they're long-standing clients, and say, "Sorry, guys, we do have to charge more." But uh, I suppose you, you're relying on that good communication that you've had over the years to be able to say here's why, and, and that they'll definitely yeah, believe you. Yeah, look, um, you don't need to be one-dimensional, right? You can be multi-dimensional, and I think honesty and facts and um, good finesse with clients is never a bad thing, and I think they help you manage through these times, and um, I'm proud of the balance that we're building between retaining the technical aspects, being good portfolio managers, but also... Um, having a strong client franchise and we see dividends paying off there. Well Steve actually you seem you seem very relaxed so so I can only commend you that you seem to, you don't seem phased by any of these uh, any of these market difficulties and you seem to be relishing these uh, difficult conversations that you're going to have to be having over Well the next six look you don't relish in <laughs> difficult conversations with clients but at the end of the day if you want to run a successful business for the long term it's it's necessary and you know we continue to invest in our platform trying to attract the best people, trying to bring energy to the market and to the conversations. And our teams are highly motivated, aligned, and determined. And I think, if anything else, that's going to give you the best chance to succeed. Well, um, I've run through most of the questions I wanted to ask you, uh, Steve, and we're coming up to a reasonable amount of time spent together. Um, is there anything that you think we uh, haven't spoken about that we should have done? Well, maybe what I'll do is just um, elaborate um, on that aspect I was just talking about on, you know, the team and the need to continue to be people focused. So we have a belief and I have a belief that highly engaged employees lead to highly engaged clients, which ultimately will lead to growing profits and better returns. And I think it's so important, even as the market goes through a difficult period, to live these principles of making pe people feel valued, a sense of belonging, and a greater sense of purpose. And I know that sounds cliche or very basic, but it's very important to stay focused because I think on a day-to-day -day basis, um, it becomes difficult to implement when you have portfolio objectives and the market needs to correct um, in a certain way. So we're really committed to having a human culture and trying to exhibit as much emotional intelligence and EQ as we possibly can. And again, as we talked about earlier, I think really being transparent um, and having strong communication is the key um, and being honest. And it sounds easy, but it requires commitment and a huge difference. And I just want to say that we're, we're so proud of the team that we have at Axis across both insurance, reinsurance, and, and some of our corporate functions. And uh, we're pretty confident in the future. And suppose, and that's how you differentiate and compete in in a world in which a lot of people see reinsurance capital as a, just a, a cheap commodity. Yeah, and then ultimately, if it if you invest in your people and you're good with clients, these sounds like some of the softer factors about 
client relationships, investing in your people. But when you match all the harder aspects of what we need to do in our industry, uh, yeah, I think it makes a difference. Well, thank you very much, Steve. I think thanks for your hospitality um, and uh, good luck with all the renewals. I said, and we'll come. Obviously, I'll book in and some time with you if, at Monte Carlo, if not before, to, to check in to see how it's all gone. All right, thanks, and good luck with the podcast. Thanks very much, Steve. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>